0: invite your attention this morning to Philippians chapter 1. Uh, Wow, Philippians chapter 2, we're not going backwards, are we? We're going forwards. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Uh, Before we get started, just a little commercial for you. A special thank you to uh, several people. I know Amanda Hinkle, uh, Jeff, and Brittany Mueller, who are, I believe, uh, back there. Uh, They helped with the youth on uh, Tuesday night. You may not know this, but the youth were here from 6.30 p.m., to just before 7 a.m., and uh, it was an all-night thing. I came at 2 a.m., and I was tired. They came at 6.30 p.m., and we're just tired as could be. So, uh, guys, thank you very much for your help. I know uh, Becky Hinkle also helped, and Deb Elam, thank you all very much. And, uh, yeah, you can clap for that. Thank you. Uh, had a good time, and uh, more so got to study God's Word in the process, and hopefully got some rest, right, Jeff? And uh, a little bit, <laughs> at least. Amen. That's good. Well, you know, it's that time of year where we start talking about uh, the, the topic of God starts to become more prevalent. I don't know if you've noticed that, especially in light of the Supreme Court. The, uh, the picture of who God is and the question of what God is like comes up a lot during this time. And so, you know, a lot of people have a view of God that's very different than what the Bible has. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Probably you have. But many people have an image of God as an angry parent. Or perhaps more so, if some of you remember this guy, Mr. Rogers. You remember that guy growing up, Mr. Rogers, the uh, hello neighbor or uh, whatever else, and the train came and the mailman. A lot of people view God in kind of that way. God's either really angry like this guy is in the picture, or he's just a doting grandfather that is just there to meet every one of your needs. And it reflects very much of the character of God in our culture today, doesn't it? It distorts the character of God in a lot of ways. But isn't there a piece of us that wants this to be true about God, especially the Mr. Rogers part? If God was just like Mr. Rogers, a lot of people think, then life would just be peachy keen. It would be great. Uh, a lot of people say, well, if God was just nice and peaceful and non-confrontational, wouldn't that just make life all the better? But people think often that confrontation and caring are mutually exclusive. They can't go together like oil and water. But friends, God is both confrontational and comforting at the same time, isn't he? Aren't you glad that's the God we serve? He's a God that's both convicting, he's a God that's both comforting, but he's a God that's both non-conventional. He's not like our thoughts. And this is why in Psalm 76 7 it says this, a psalm that's very famous, but one of the verses that comes out of the psalm it says, but you, that's God, you are to be feared. Who can stand before you in your anger? The acts of God are mighty. The theme of this psalm is a God who's powerful, a a God who's to be feared. And so God is known, He's powerful, and He is to be feared above all other things. But in light of who God is, we don't often hear that in America today, do we? In light of even celebrating this nation's birthplace yesterday and birth date, what does it mean that God is a God to be feared? What does it mean as we go through Philippians, as we study what this next section talks about? How do we grow as individuals and a church in the fear of God why is that so important well I'll throw this big idea out at you I think this is so true the gospel church is the difference between having a biblical fear of the Lord and being afraid of him and I'll just add this in like Casper the ghost a lot of people think God's just going to jump out at him all of a sudden and say boo and there you are and he's going to scare you that's not the fear of God that we're going to talk about today You see, because the fear of God is the death of every other fear. Knowing Christ is the difference between being rightly afraid of Him and reverently fearing Him. The fear of God is something that we need back in America. Would you agree with that? The fear of God is something we desperately need. And this morning, we're going to talk about three ways that Paul gives us. He's going to talk about gospel-driven sanctification. That's a mouthful. What it means is, based on the fear of God, how are we to grow as Christians? How are we to grow as a church based on this thing? Well, Paul gives us three things, as usual, uh, that we can go through. Paul first says, you want to fear God and grow as a Christian and as a church, you need to work. Second, you need to shine. And third, you need to rejoice. And that's going to come straight out of the text we're looking at. If you were here last week, we saw that Paul, was uh, in the last section, uh, verses 5 through 11... Paul showed us that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and that Christ's example not only was salvation for us, but was also a practical way that we can live out the gospel here at Tower View and any other God-fearing church. So what Paul wants the Philippians to know today is that Christ is to be obeyed, that we are to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, and that that manner advances the gospel. And when we fear God, do you know what that does to our church? Man, it brings it together just like this. And that's where we're headed today. Friends, America needs a lot of things, but I think more than anything, a biblical, healthy fear of God is what we need. Because if we know that God is not just a Mr. Rogers or a doting bellhop at our every whim and need, and he's not an angry parent, he is a just, righteous, loving, merciful God. And that's exactly what Mark read out of James. What an amazing God we serve. Let's stand as we read this, if you're able, and we will stand before God's word this morning. Six verses coming from Philippians 2. I say this all the time, but if you're a visitor here and you do not have a Bible, you can open up that Pew Bible, and I believe we're on page 981. You are welcome to take that as a gift from us to you. We'd be glad to have you to do that. Philippians two twelve through 18, Paul says this. So then, or therefore, my beloved, Just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will for his good pleasure, and do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Some of you may have the word twisted there, both are equally applicable among whom you appear as lights in the world, or shine as the stars in the heavens, some of you may have. Holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, I will have no reason, I will have every reason, rather, to glory, because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. Verse 17. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice in the service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. Wow. God is a good God, and we are going to pray before him. Let's go as we uh, start off our study today. Let's bow our heads, and let's go before the Lord. God, we thank you so much for this country we live in, but Lord, we pray that we would have a healthy biblical fear of you, that we would work out our salvation, we would shine for you, Lord, and that we would rejoice at not only what you're doing in others, but also what we can do to help others rejoice with you Father, we pray that's where we go this morning. But, Father, may you be honored. May your uh, gospel be advanced. May your name be glorified. That's our prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for this. We ask it and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. You know, I'll be very honest with you. The verse, uh, verse 12, is a very controversial verse. And one reason why we preach verse by verse or section by section through the Bible is because we don't want to just give you the easy stuff. We want to make sure that you understand the Bible as a whole. And I hope you appreciate that. I hope you get that. We're not just cherry-picking out what we want. We want to go exactly what God's Word is. This verse is very controversial. Did I say that? Verse 12. Let me read it for you again. So then, my beloved, or therefore, just as you've always obeyed, not so much in my presence only. That's not the controversial part. This is where most people get in trouble. But now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Wow, yesterday about 9 a.m., we got a knock on the door. And it was a friendly person trying to share a false gospel with us. And he very much said that, I asked him, how do you, sir, how are you saved? And he said, you must be a good person, follow the commands, and that's how you get to heaven. Friend, this is not what this verse is talking about. When we talk about working out our salvation, we are not talking about bringing anything to the table. God put everything on the table. He was all in in Christ. When he said it was finished, it was truly finished. Amen? Paul is not telling them to work for their salvation. Paul is exhorting them as believers to obey the message of the gospel and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Think about this. Ephesians 2 says we are saved by grace through faith. It is not of works. It is a what? It is a gift of God. Titus 3.5 says it's not by the works that you do. All of Romans, all of Galatians, just toss them out. If we believe we bring anything to the table for salvation, we have lost the gospel. That is not what Paul is saying here. So what is he saying? He is saying perhaps a better word or another Greek translation could be cultivate or carry through. Something is working inside of you that will grow out of you by what God has done. Paul is telling them to make their salvation fruitful here and now. Working out our salvation means that we do everything we can to feed this new life, this gospel-centered life, to stimulate it, to enable it, to extend it, to develop it and make it grow. That's what it means. Cultivate what God has begun in you. Now you say, well, Darren, we're not saved by our works, but friends, do you understand that by your works you show whether or not you're saved? Ooh, think about that one for a second. You are not saved by what you do, but what you do shows whether you're truly saved. That's 1 John in a nutshell. But how are we to do this? This is where the next section comes in. We are to do it with fear and trembling. We are to do it with awe and reverence is another translation. That Greek word there for fear is the Greek word phobos, which you could probably hear it in your mind. The, the word phobia comes from that. The word phobia back or phobos back then meant a panic. It's a, it's, it's a soldier running from battle because he's so fearful of what's ahead of him. But more generally, the word pho- fear or phobos means a fear in the widest sense, a respect And awe, a a grandeur, if you want to use a big word, for who someone or something is. And what Paul is telling them is that they're not trying to work for their salvation. They're not trying to work so hard that if they cross all the T's and dot all the I's that God might save them. What he's telling them is, you have been saved by grace, through faith, in Christ. And this means with all humility, with all reverence, with all diligence... Work out your salvation with seriousness and soberness. And sanctification, that's a big word we use around here. It's a big Christian word. It means to to grow in Christ. Because growing in Christ, God takes very seriously. You know, something I think, and I mentioned this in the introduction, that's very much missing from church pulpits today, and I pray it never misses from Tower View, is that we must have a holy respect for a holy God with a holy hatred for our sin and the sin of this world. Isn't that a big difference for most pulpits today? Friends, it's a rare thing to divine Christians today as God-fearing people, isn't it? Have you ever walked around and said, man, there's a God-fearing person. You just don't hear it that much anymore. Why? Because we Christians must be more serious and sober and realize that our salvation was bought at an infinite cost. The cost of God's very own son. Some out there would have you believe that uh, getting out of hell or getting to Jesus is just getting out of hell card. Like you're playing a Monopoly board. And you're getting ready to go into jail and but you just throw down that card. Look, I got my Jesus get out of hell card. And that's, the boy, if that's our view of God, we have Mr. Rogers pinned into a corner. Because that is not who God is. Because you see in verse 13 what God actually does for us? Look back at your text. We are to work out with salvation, fear, and trembling. Not a fear that is afraid of God. We should be rightly afraid of God. But a healthy fear of him means that we respect his position. He's God, we're not, we trust him for every detail. But Paul goes on, he says, God works secondly in our salvation. It is God who is at work in you. Take that guy who respectfully, and I respect his general, look, he has the right to practice his religion, but it's wrong. But one thing that he did is knock on the door, but you know, he said, it's, he said the word I, I can't tell you how many times. Well, I have to do this, I have to do that, I have to do this. Friends, when it comes to salvation, you are called to repent and believe the gospel. But do you know whose work that is? That is God's work. Look at what the verse says. For it is God who is at work in you. Specifically, he's at work in you to grow you by his grace to be a more Christ-centered Christian. But broadly, God is at work in you to bring you to Christ. What a glorious God. We've mentioned this so much, but guys, we were running towards hell But God, in his graciousness, reached out and grabbed us so that we might have eternal life. No other God is going to do that in all creation. Aren't you glad Would you praise God that he did that for you? Amen? God's gracious, D.A. Carson said it this way, God's gracious, continuous, sovereign work in our lives becomes an incentive for us to press on with fear and trembling. James Montgomery Boyce, a great commentator, said, no one can work out his salvation until god has first worked in him or her salvation why does god do this why does god continue to work in us even when he knows what's truly inside of us well he does it because so that we would desire to please him that we desire to please him as he pours his power into us we do things that bring him glory take special note that it's his pleasures not our pleasures it's his will, not our will. It's His glory, not our glory, that makes life meaningful. When Paul says God works in you for to His will and to His pleasure, that is God's glory. But why else does God do this? He does it because He wants to see that desire of what pleases Him, and He does it to so that we do what pleases Him. It's a desire to do it, and it's a doing to do it you say, well, Darren, if God is sovereign, if God called our salvation, if God's the author of salvation, if God works in our salvation, then why don't I just take the easy chair, sit back, kick up my feet, and don't do anything? Then you have missed the whole point of scripture. Friends, we have a sovereign God who knows every detail backwards and forwards, but at the same time, he calls us to live out the Christian life. You say, well, how does all that work out together? Welcome to the great mystery called divine sovereignty. Do not use God's gracious work in your life as an excuse to not walk for, live for, and desire to grow in Jesus Christ. There was a group of those people back in the 1700s. They were called hyper Calvinists. They believed that God was so sovereign in salvation that they didn't need to go out and share the gospel. Look, does God know who's going to be saved? Yes, he does. We better believe that or else God doesn't know the future. But they said, look, We don't need to evangelize. We're just gonna have our holy huddle here every Sunday and the world will be saved or not saved whether God wants it to be. Wow, aren't you glad that God sent someone to share the gospel to you? Amen? Friends, that's a great thing. But what Paul is telling them is that you have to work out with fear and trembling. We fear and tremble before God because he gives us responsibility to grow in grace. But we also fear and tremble before him because he is the enactor of that fear and grace and trembling in our life. You know, it's like this story I heard uh, a pastor share. Uh, a boss received a, a reference call. Many of you have been bosses before and you've had to do this. They reference called someone who had applied to their company. And the caller asked, he said, how long did Mr. Michaels work for you? And the former employer said, I guess he was here about two months or he worked for about two months. And the, uh, the, the reference caller said, well, that's odd because on his resume, he noted he was with the company for at least two years. And unfortunately, the former boss said, unfortunately, he was, but he only really worked for about two months. It's very true. You know, and that's the case. You can be an employee and just sail through life. But friends, if you're truly a Christian, you cannot just sail through life. You are called. You are commissioned. You are commanded. I'm commanded. We're commanded to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we can't use God's sovereignty that he works for his pleasure in us as an excuse. So what does this mean for you? Let me give you some faith lessons to, to go through that we do. First, Christian, can I ask you a simple question? Do you fear the Lord? Do you fear God? You see, because fear-based repentance, fear-based confession of your sin makes us hate ourselves. But joy-based repentance or confession makes us hate our sin. God inspires awe in us. You know, today, our uh, my generation likes to use the word awesome, We use that word all the time. You may even catch me every now and then saying, well, that's awesome, that's great. got to be careful with that word because what does that word really mean? When you see something that's awesome, what is that really supposed to do to your mind? It's a mind-blowing thing. Yet today we've used it so commonplace that it's just, oh, that's great, it's just another thing. But what God does is inspire affection to Him. When we know God for who He is, it really brings us back to the point that there's a reverent distance. I'm not God, He is but yet a drawing love because, boy, he's the friend of sinners. What stirs you, Christian, to repent of your sins today? What encourages you to persevere in the good in your life? What causes you to call out to God, God, grow me, challenge me? Friends, it's the fear of God. Can I ask you this morning, do you need to go back over what it means to fear God? I would encourage you to study that if you don't know that fear because if you're not a Christian here today, Fearing God's a real thing, isn't it? Sometimes God has just become that little jack-in-the-box that if you just kind of stir him up a little bit, he's going to jump out and say, woo, here I am, here I am. Or it's like Simeon at the pool. Simeon, when we went to the pool, they have one of those big buckets that comes down of water. Boy, was he scared of that thing. He's gotten a little courage, he's gotten up. He just laughs every time it goes down because he knows after a while it's just not going to hurt him. That's how some people view God. Friends, if you're not a Christian here today, have you considered his judgment? Have you considered the fact that he will judge the world in righteousness? God has promised only eternal suffering for those who reject him. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. If you're not a Christian here today, please know that we would be more than happy to talk to you at any point about what it means to be a Christian. Please talk to us. So if you're not a Christian, that, that fear is appropriate. But let me say it this way. If you find the message of Jesus easy to digest, you better check the label on the box. Our God is not safe. Our God is not nice, to use the contemporary terms. You may have a diluted version of what the Bible says. The message of Jesus and the cross is this, that he himself is life and you can't get it anywhere else, least of all in yourself. It is the hardest message we could ever hear because it goes completely against our perceptions and everything we are. It goes radically against the bent of our souls. He is just. He is holy. But all our pictures of God fail us. He's too big to be comfortable. God is God and there's none like him. He's the one, the only one to be feared. And Christian, if you're here today, by God's grace, you've been brought to him by Christ. Amen? You are to work out your salvation with work, but it's all by God's grace. Here's what Paul goes in secondly. You ready for this? He says, shine. He says, shine three ways we're going to do this. You look at verses 14 through 16. It's very easy to follow. He gives one command in verse 14. He says, do. Do three things. He says, do all things without grumbling or complaining or disputing so that you'll prove to be blameless and innocent. And then he says, hold fast to the word of life in verse 16. We'll kind of go through those one by one. How are you to grow as a Christian in the fear of God? You're to work. Secondly, you're to shine. First off, by holding tight your tongue. Hard, isn't it? That's on Facebook, that's on social media, that's in person, that's behind the scenes, that's in front of the scenes. But where does this question come from? Why does he say, Don't grumble and complain, hold your tongue, or don't grumble and question? Well, think about this Israel. Israel did this in Exodus 15. They just saw God completely wipe out the Egyptian army. And they go out and they don't have water. And what do they say? God, it would be better if we were to die in the wilderness. God, it would be better if I were a slave for the rest of my life in Egypt. And God is not saying that his people don't have the right to ask him a question. What he's saying through Paul here in verse 14 is he's saying that sinful questioning is wrong. What Paul is telling the Philippians is don't do that. Don't do like Israel did. You can look at 1 Corinthians 10 for this as well. They grumbled against God. They questioned every step their leaders make. And it brought about what? It brought about a breaking apart of the congregation. This is why in this whole chapter two, Paul's been about unity of the church. Everything points back to unity in the gospel. You know, it's like that kid, if you've ever heard that story or seen that cartoon, that young kid who's just rambunctious, it's like a Dennis the Menace type kid, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, he's that redheaded, not that redheaded people are bad, but you know what I mean, just that kid that's just in trouble all the time. It's the picture that, of the teacher who sets down that kid In the chair and I don't know if they're Restraining him but he's sitting down There's that bubble across his head and He says on the outside I'm sitting down but on the Inside I'm standing up Ever thought about that before Some of you are like that even today You just just go after it But God wants you and Paul is saying Here that to pursue godliness We must not only Internally but externally Remember that we are not to be Grudgingly to each other We're not merely outwardly to grumble all the way. He wants us to obey from the heart. He wants us to do it with the whole congregation in relationship to one another. Friends, be very careful about the grumblings you make, because the grumblings you make might just be the part that takes that little gospel-centeredness and starts to break it apart in that way. Look at verse 15. How do you shine? Hold your tongue. Don't complain or grumble. He says, secondly, hold your testimony. Verse 15. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Okay, we're back to that controversial thing. Is Paul saying here in verse 15 that to be a child of God, it's all about your behavior? No. He's saying somehow that you make yourself to be a child of God by your good works? No. What he's saying is that children of God show that they're children of God by the way that they live. He's saying you show your adoption by God and the Holy Spirit by the life you live. He's saying you know whose child you are by your behavior. You show whose father you are, whether lowercase f or God the Father, by your obedience, by your deeds. Paul is saying that you can say you're a Christian, but maybe not truly live it out. Look, we believe that you are saved, and you are truly saved forever if you're saved. Amen? Congregation, amen? You better say it, because that is a good one. Because look, we do not believe you can lose your salvation. If you are truly in Christ, you are caught in Christ forever. You can't walk away from it, can't throw it out, because it's God who started it, it's God who's going to finish it. Philippians 1, verse 6. But what Paul is saying is that together their testimony is to be a witness to the world. And that together their testimony is to be something that is so shining forth that the crooked and twisted generation they lived in then is going to see a difference in their congregation. Paul started out by saying in the last verse, don't do what Israel did. But in verse 15, he's saying, do what Israel didn't do. Do you know that Israel was called to be a light to the nations? They were called to be the source of light to all the nations. People would come and see that their God is different. But they didn't do it, did they? First of all, they were supposed to be children of God, They were supposed to walk according to his deeds. And they did absolutely everything opposite of that, for the most part. But they didn't do it. And so Paul's prayer is that during this time, that these Philippians would hold tight their testimony. Do you notice that phrase, crooked and twisted generation? I don't know if you can get that picture in your mind. It's one of those modern art pictures. You go to the Nelson downtown where it's got a little metal bent here and a little metal bent there in your mind. Friends, how do we overcome that? We overcome it by doing what Israel didn't do. That's the purpose of your life, in your workplace, in your home, in everywhere you go is that we would be viewed, I would be viewed, we as a congregation would be viewed as different from this world. Isn't that where the fear of God comes in everything? If we truly fear God for who He is, when coworkers are complaining about the boss, we're not going to step up and say, oh yeah, yeah, this happened to me. When we're tempted to complain about this or that or say this or that or do this or that that would go against christ the fear of god backs us up and says no it's not worth my testimony to lose what i'm about to talk about paul says christian you be and do as a congregation when israel failed to be and to do why don't grumble don't complain hold tight your tongue hold tight your testimony because it all goes back to the truth look at verse 16 He says, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. That little phrase is actually completing a sentence from verse 15. How do you shine? How do you shine as lights in this world or stars? You do it by holding fast to the truth. In other words, Paul is telling them how they're supposed to shine. How is it that you're supposed to be a witness in this life? By holding fast to the word of life. Friends, that's why in this church we are unashamedly all about the gospel and all about the Bible. Amen? That's why we do everything here to the glory of God, because God has told us that's how we shine. That's how we shine. Your practicing of the truth is the way you bear witness. We bear witness to this sin-stained, darkened world. Paul's saying, don't just believe the Bible, live the Bible. Don't just honor God's words with your lips, honor it with your lives, or you're not honoring it at all. Don't just practice what you preach, practice the truth. Paul is teaching them that during that time, that real rewards for Christ will come out on that day. You know, I think when we stand before God in glory, those big names that we see today will get some honor and glory, but I often think it's those humble, behind-the-scenes people that just live the godly life, the quiet, godly life that someday will be given the most crowns. But what are we going to do with those crowns anyway? we going to throw them all to God because they're all His. They're all His work. Friends, what Paul is praying is they would hold tight to the truth, and in doing so, they will be a witness to the congregation have another pastor story for you. I don't know if this is true. This is a proverbial story, so just go with it. But I heard about a pastor who took on a lot of criticism. And as he tried to maintain a positive outlook, he had a church member come up to him. And one day, after listening to the complaints of the church member for the 100th time, he remarked, the pastor did, if I just had two more men like you, Mr. Smith, I would be a happy man. Hmm. It caught the old crank off his guard, you could say. With a confused look, he said, Pastor, but I criticize everything you do. What do you mean you'll be happy with two more men just like me? And the pastor wisely said, because I have 20 men like you, so if I only had two more men like you, I'd be a happy man forever. Some of y'all, that's going to sink in a little bit later. He's, look, grumbling and complaining are not ultimately about anything about except your heart's responses to circumstances. Before you complain to God about anything, anything thank him that you have the breath to complain with amen parents if you regularly complain about the church grandparents if you regularly complain about the church well we could be doing this or we could be doing that or we uh," in front of your kids or grandkids don't be surprised if one day they leave the church it's true before you complain about your church be grateful that you have a church and remember you're a part of a church you're complaining about what are you doing to pray and make a difference Friends, before you complain about your employer, be grateful that you have one, amen? Remember how God has protected you from making a shipwreck of your life. Remember how God has graciously let you grow up in a godly family. Some of you all did that. Some of you all didn't. Some of you are growing godly families now or plan to have kids and grow them someday. Thank God for that. Remember how your wife, your sister, your mom, or someone survived cancer or a great disease. Remember how you had mentors and key people along your life to stir you on in the faith. Maybe it was a pastor or youth pastor Sunday school teacher. Remember how God miraculously healed you. God is still in that business, isn't he? God still does. Remember how God answered the impossible prayer request that you got in the mail, the exact amount of money that you needed for the request that you had been praying for, and you all have those stories. Remember how the gospel came alive as it never had been before, and God awakened you to salvation. And most of all, remember God. What a great God that we serve. But friends, not only are we not to grumble and complain, I think another practical takeaway is the world doesn't read the Bible necessarily, they read us. Someone has wisely said, and it's not original to me, but you may be the only Bible that some people read in their lifetime. Christian, does your life match your words? Is there something in God's word that God is telling you to do? It's a command, you know it, it's sin you're walking in and you just refuse to do it. You're like that kid who's sitting in the chair saying, I'm sitting down, but Lord, inside I'm standing up. God sees it all there's something in your life that you need to take care of? Friends, are you praying that your life on a day-to-day basis, are you praying for our congregation that we would be seen as God fearing people? Would you pray for that this week? That we would hold tight our tongues, hold tight our testimony, hold tight our truth. Listen, this does not mean that you can't come up and say, you know, pastor, your sermons are a little too long. You need to sh- Come give me feedback. I like feedback. Go to someone else and say, you know, what if we, what if we just modify this a different way? That's not what we're talking about. What we are talking about when we talk about complaining and holding tight all these things is that your spirit in doing it, is it a godly one? Or is it simply just one that you just want to go and make your case be known? friend? Because it's easier to say and do things than to actually do them sometimes, isn't it? We like ease and hypocrisy, but the thing that Kahal is telling us is that in every facet of your life, do I fear God with my words? Do I fear God with my testimony? Do I fear God with the truth? And that's where it's at let's move on we'll close with this last point so paul has told us you want to grow as a christian you want to grow as a church and fear god you got to work under god's sovereign hand in sanctification you have to shine but lastly you need to rejoice look at verse 17 paul says but even if i am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith i rejoice and share my joy with you all in other words paul's saying to the philippians philippians do you understand what's going on here Your sanctification, your growth in Christ is very expensive. God wants you to grow in grace and be like the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is willing to pour me, Paul, out as an offering to be more like Christ so that you will live the Christian life. You know that word drink offering there that has a weird connotation in our thing? Uh, I don't know if you noticed, we don't have any lambs out there being sacrificed today. That was last week if you were gone. Uh, Some of you all missed that. We'll be doing it next week. No, I'm just kidding. But drink offerings were a part of everyday life, whether you were a Jew or not. Basically, you would kill an animal, and you would take the blood, you sprinkle it on the altar that you were doing, and the carcass of the animal would be consumed by the fire of the altar. But as a Jew, you would take that drink offering, and you would pour it out next to the altar itself. But either way, the drink offering was sort of a topping on the cake, an icing on the cake of the whole offering that was being offered to God. what paul is saying here first off if we're to grow as christians and fear god we're to rejoice by serving others serving others paul is saying if my life is simply a component for you to live for god then it's all been worth it i'll be more happy in fact and i'll be rejoicing paul is teaching here how expensive it is to use that word to be a christian friend are you willing to serve others at the expense of your time of your resources of whatever's going on in your life, are you willing to put down your service for others in that way? Paul was willing to give his life so that this church may grow. That's tough. I remember when I interviewed at Sycamore Hills Baptist Church, uh, Tim Sennett, who's a godly man, I've known him for years, looked me square in the eyes. I didn't know how to answer him at first. He looked me square in the eyes, and he said, Darren, he said, are you willing to give your life for these youth?" It's a first interview question out of the gate. Well, uh, if I say no, I'm walking out the door. I, I will, but I, you know, it's one of those things. You say yes, but you think about that and the ramifications. That's a lot. Friends, are we praying that no matter what the cost, as this culture changes, that we are willing to stand as Christians as we serve one another? They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. And he also says in verse 18, kind of connected to that, and the 2nd subpoint, he says, be glad with others. Look at verse 18. He says you too that's y'all that's everyone in the congregation i urge you or exhort you rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me paul says not it's not just that i'm glad i'm being poured out i'm willing to do that philippians it's not that i'm rejoicing he says he wants you to rejoice and be glad with him it's one thing for me as a pastor as paid pastoral staff to say oh that's part of my job description friends that's a real battle for a pastor you think about that We get paid to do this thing called ministry, but our heart is to serve freely and do those things, but we have to take care of a family. You do the same thing. You have to work jobs. Some of you would, if you could, financially, you would give up everything and go serve in a foreign country. How many of y'all would do that? Honestly, many of your hands would go up. It's tough. God has put you in a place where you are to serve and rejoice with others because that's where he's called you to do. In other words, Paul's saying, if you don't rejoice as I'm poured out like a drink offering, if you don't rejoice in my sacrifice, you're not getting it. Friends, when you've already been given everything by Christ, you can't lose anything that matters. When you've already been given everything in Christ, you can't give away anything that matters. When you've already been given everything in Christ, no one can take away anything from you that matters. Let me give you a quick illustration of this. Here's a picture of a young lady. This is not a true story. I just want to paint a picture for you. Let's say if a young man or a young woman graduated from KU Med... I'm sorry to say they are a good medical school, but I am an MU fan. I'm just going to throw that out there while we're here. Let's just say someone graduates from KU Med, gets their degree, and, and they're a doctor. And they, they come to me and say, you know what, Pastor Darren, I think I'm going to go to Midwestern Seminary and get my degree in ministry because I want to go on the field as a missionary medical person. And they graduate with honors three years later. We celebrate with them, and they go off to Pakistan. God calls them to Pakistan. And three months later, they die at the hands of a radical Muslim. Our tendency would be to say, isn't it, what a waste of a life. What a waste of a life. What a waste. That's our natural tendency, honestly. That's that's what I thought, at least. We know deep inside there's more meaning. But friends, what Paul is saying is that, no, don't you understand? God is ready to pour me, Paul, out as a gift. And Paul is telling them that the, ga- the gift... Of sacrifice is more than just the time they spend on the field. It's the heart, intention, and the fear of God that they have. Are you willing? Am I willing? Are we willing to put it all on the line for Christ in this world and in this culture? Let me end with two quick things. What does this mean for you practically, friends? J.C. Ryle. If you ever get a, uh, if you want a book recommendation, a lot of you ask for book recommendations. J.C. Ryle's book called Holiness is the best book you can read on the topic, probably within the last 150 years. And yes, he is an old dead guy, by the way. Some of you want to know that. But friends, seriously, J.C. Ryle writes like you and I are talking. Go read his book, Holiness. You can find it online for free, please. He said this in this book. He said, a cheap Christianity that offends no one, requires no sacrifice, and costs nothing, is worth what? Nothing. Everyone wants to be a hero today and get their 15 minutes of fame, but no one wants to sacrifice anything. Friend, what are you willing, Christian, to do to sacrifice to fulfill God's purpose for this church and the great commission to share the gospel around the world? Whatever it is, if I can be so frank, is your God or is my God, is our God. And it's robbing you, it's robbing me, it's robbing us. No sacrifice we offer to God can cover up our disobedience to the will of God. Worship is offering our whole selves to God as a living sacrifice, Romans 12. And worship is so much more than singing. And Mark, thank you for leading us in worship every week. But isn't it true that our lives are to be patterned after worship? That when we're clocking in at work, that we're doing dishes, we're changing diapers, we're whatever we're doing, it's all to the glory of God. Every small step. You know what? You want false converts in this church, people who walk the aisle but walk away from the faith? A faith they never had, if I can say that. Tell them there's a free gift that requires no sacrifice. But friends, the truth is this. If there's no crown, no cross, there's no crown. And that's the truth of Christianity. That's the truth of Christianity. What does this mean for the local church? For us here at Tower View, as we talk about things. Let me say it this way. Biblical friendship is the most important, least talked about relationship in the church itself. You know, oftentimes our best friends are those outside the church. You ever noticed that before? Friends, you have more people in this church who you have more in common with than you know, most of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But how do you select your friends? How do you select your friends? Do you just go on Facebook and say, man, he looks pretty nice. Let me befriend him. That's how easy it is today. Uh, I have almost 1,500 Facebook friends, quote, unquote, but I probably keep up with less than 5% of them. Natalie, is that true? I think that's probably right. And you are the same. Many of you have friends from many years gone by, but it's not just having a Casual passive relationship in the church relationships in the church are when people look towards each other to pray for one another to serve one another to to spend time together and talk about the things we have in common you say man I don't have anything in common with that person do you have the gospel? you have something in common they have a prayer need you have a prayer need maybe you need to link arms with someone in this congregation Christian look for mature Christians as friends and Look to be a mature Christian yourself to act as a friend in this congregation. Also be aware that increased holiness, let me just say this, as you grow in Christ, as you grow in a fear of God, people are going to start to walk away from you. You're going to distance yourself from even other Christians who mean well. But friends, let me say this. Our church is called to live a fear of God. Would you pray that in the relationships of this church, that yes, we serve each other and have fun, we had a lot of fun last night with the fireworks. We had to tell a guy to get off our sign from throwing smoke bombs down there. That was fun. And there are all sorts of things out there. But you know what? We have fun at this church, and you're going to have fun at this church. But with that fun is the foundation that if you're a Christian, that it's all based on a fear of God. And it's all based on that relationship. Husbands, can I speak to you today? Are you sacrificing more for your wife than she does for you? In Ephesians 5, Christ's sacrifice outpaces anything the church can do. Husbands, were called to love are wives as Christ loved the church. Single man, if you're a single person here today, are you praying that you would sacrifice now as a pattern for your relationship in the future as marriage as God has that? Women and mothers, can I talk to you, or soon-to-be mothers, want-to-be mothers, or even grandparents? The world will taunt you often for making a sacrifice for your career, for your children. And look, it's okay to work outside the home. My wife works outside the home. But the world perspective is a choking co- cocktail of guilt and anxiety that uh, it's a perfect madness mothers let me just say to you that it is okay my wife uh, we we've had to go over this battle our our house at times is like a war zone we step on legos and thomas the train more than our feet can take it's a mad zone but praise god i love my wife because i know that her heart is spent on serving god friends i pray that if whether you're a stay-at-home mom you're a grandparent who can't get out as much or whatever it is don't buy the world's junk that says you have to have this perfect house with the perfect life and the perfect kids and the perfect everything. you have a perfect God and that's enough. Where do you need to lay down in your life for your family or for others today friends that's where paul's going i I know i've been a, we've kind of chased some rabbits today, but the, the the focus of it is this: Do you fear the Lord? Is your God a Mr. Rogers? Is your God the angry parent? Look, God is angry at sin, and that's why he sent Christ, and God absorbed that wrath. But is your God just simply a doting grandparent in the sky waiting for you to come to him with whatever wish you have? And yes, friends, please let me be clear. God says bring everything small and big to him, but there's a healthy balance of fear in the life. You want a good way to read that? Go through and read Hebrews chapter 10 and Hebrews chapter 11 tonight. That will put a good fear of what it means. Hebrews 12 says this. Our God is a consuming fire. Wow. Not a fire work. Let me clarify that. But a consuming fire. Do you know him today? Let's bow before the Lord in prayer. God, I pray as Paul prayed for these Philippians that we would do all things. Lord, thank you that salvation, first off, is of you. It is not of our hand. It is all of your grace. It is your call, Father. But it is your call also for us to grow in holiness. So, Father, I pray for those struggling with Bible reading, I pray with those struggling, Father, even with prayer, as easy as that may sound, Father, that you would enliven them. I, maybe someone here needs to uh, be more faithful in church. I don't know, Lord, but whatever it is, work in them the need. Show them that clear need to grow in the grace, but thank you. It's all for your will, your kingdom, and your pleasure, and not those three things for us. Father, I pray that you would hold tight our tongues, our testimony, and our truth. Help us to do that corporately as a church, but individually as people of your word. Father, I pray also that we would serve others. Father, thank you for Paul's example. He was willing to give his life for others. Lord, give me that heart, whatever that means. Lord, for your word and your glory. Father, But we pray also for anyone in this room that doesn't know Christ. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hands if we are truly in you. So, Father, draw those people to you. You know the truth. Lord, you're so good. We pray for our nation, Lord. It's your nation. Lord, whether... uh, whatever happens, you are sovereign. We give that to you, but we pray that we would be active change agents in this culture by the way we live our lives, the testimony we have, and the truth we proclaim. May we do it with love, may we do it with boldness, and all humility, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.